This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. From about 15 years on up, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast where we also veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. This podcast will be on Ariel Castro. For those of you watching, my notes are here on the screen. I'm a very thorough note taker, so I'll be looking at that quite a bit. I apologize. Ariel was born on July 10th, 1960 in Puerto Rico. So let's get into some history for that time. This year, we see John F. Kennedy win the presidency of the United States of America. Hugh Hefner opened the first of his Playboy clubs in Chicago. France tested its first atomic bomb and thus joined other countries with nuclear technology. Also in 1960, the United States sent troops to Vietnam after France had left. Construction on the Aswan High Dam in Egypt began this year and was completed in 10 years. The dam had a hugely positive impact on Egypt's economy. Also this year, NASA launched the Pioneer 5 space probe that would travel between Earth and Venus's orbits to gather information about deep space between the two planets. The Civil Rights Act of 1960 was signed into law, closing loopholes from the Civil Rights Act of 1957, mostly to do with voter disenfranchisement. The Summer Olympics were held in Rome, Italy this year. The cult classic movie, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, premiered this year in New York City. The novel, To Kill a Mockingbird, was also published this year. And finally, Chubby Checker's The Twist became the dance craze. So this was the atmosphere that Ariel Castro was born into. His family had a disturbing history of violence and alcoholism. His parents were Pedro Nona Castro and Lillian Rodriguez, and they began their family in a village that was the coffee capital. He also had three other siblings, brothers Pedro and O'Neill, and a sister, Marisol. The children grew up Jehovah's Witness as that was Lillian's beliefs. According to the book, The Lost Girls on CriminalElement.com, 
over many generations, the Castro family had become the preeminent family in the isolated mountains, owning most of the land in a section called La Pera. But even so, the living conditions were primitive. The children were born in a little wooden shack at the top of La Pera. There was no running water, no electricity, and food was cooked on coal on the dirt floor. Ariel's father would drive his jeep several miles down a very muddy and steep track to fill plastic water buckets to bring up to the family. Reportedly, Pedro began an affair with a young girl who lived just down the mountain and began living a sort of double life. He had his very longtime girlfriend Lillian and his four children, and then his life with Gladys, who also gave him four children. And apparently Lillian had no idea. But in 1962, she found out about her husband's second family. She was also pregnant with Ariel's youngest sibling. She confronted him, and Pedro stated he was leaving her for his mistress. He married Gladys soon after, so Lillian packed herself and her father up and moved to Reading, Pennsylvania, abandoning her four children with a grandmother in Puerto Rico. While with his grandmother, he and his siblings had very little to no parental supervision. So in 1966, Lillian sent for her children to come to Pennsylvania, and Ariel was enrolled at Lowers Park Elementary School. He later told a psychiatrist that, as a small child, his mother would beat him with belts and sticks and an open hand. Lillian reportedly physically and verbally abused the children, according to Ariel, and he told the psychiatrist that, quote, I would ask God for her to die, unquote. But an uncle gave him a guitar and he took an interest in playing, showing some very real natural talent for the music. He then taught himself how to play the bass guitar. Some that knew them stated that Lillian, quote, held most of the sway in the family. But in 1968, Pedro, Gladys, and their children moved up to Cleveland, Ohio. And Pedro opened a used car lot and seemed to have a shrewd head for business. In 1969, Ariel's father opened a grocery store with one of his brothers, and that too was successful. Then still another brother of Pedro's opened a record store. By 1970, when Ariel was 10 years old, Lillian moved the family again over to Cleveland, Ohio, so that they could be near their father. Quote, the Castro clan is a big clan. They are very industrial and business-minded, unquote, said a man who grew up near them. But in 1971, the FBI raided one of Pedro's brother's bodegas for a supposed racketeering ring. They seized cash and guns. In 1973, Ariel started junior high and was said to have been a below-average student testing poorly in cognitive ability. He did, however, make the wrestling team, he played baseball, and he was in the school band. 
Now, while in junior high, he was effectively suspended for touching a girl's breasts, and he also got into fights with other classmates. He graduated from Lincoln West High School in 1979, nearly at the bottom of his class. So, that was Ariel's childhood. Let's unpack that. We see very clearly that Ariel and his siblings were abandoned by both parents. This can often be classified also as emotional abandonment, where the child feels that no one in their family loved them or thought that they were important or special, that they didn't feel looked after or supported. When children are prevented from having a connection to their primary caregivers, it is the hallmark of trauma. The unmet need for love is just as damaging as not having enough food or shelter. According to goodtherapy.org, a person who has experienced abandonment may be more likely to have long-term mental health issues. These are most often based on the fear that the abandonment will reoccur. A child who was abandoned by a parent may have mood swings and anger later in life. These behaviors can alienate potential intimate partners and friends. A child's self-esteem can be affected by the lack of parental support. It affects their ability to trust others. These fears make the person more prone to anxiety, depression, codependency, and abandonment issues are linked with borderline personality disorder and attachment anxiety. So borderline personality disorder, as we've discussed many times before, displays as antisocial behavior, hostility, impulsivity, irritability, risk-taking behaviors, self-destructive behavior, self-harm, social isolation, and lack of restraint. They can appear angry, anxious, they are generally discontent, they're lonely, they have grandiose ideas and are narcissistic, generally, and often have thoughts of suicide. Sounds very much like the Ariel that you're about to get to know. And then finally, his father abandoned him and his siblings and had a completely separate life, a whole other set of children with a different woman. When a father starts a new family and becomes hands-on with them, this pain can be acute. So it's something to keep in mind. Let's move on. Now, Ariel loved playing music and began playing bass in a local Latin band that mostly performed in churches. He had also started drinking and smoking marijuana. He had girlfriends. He worked menial jobs. He even played at weddings and other gigs. As the money came in, he began to spend money on expensive clothes, musical instruments, and vehicles. In early 1980, when he was 20 years old, he met a girl named Nelda who lived across the street with her parents. He found her quite attractive and he told her so, and she loved the attention. They began dating nearly immediately. Nelda's family was also from Puerto Rico and had come to the United States through New York before settling in Cleveland, Ohio. She was 16 years old at the time and had a harder time learning English. So she dropped out of school and began working. 
Ariel whined and dined her, and both of their mothers approved of the relationship. Now, Ariel would testify later that he was actually never in love with Nilda, though she was crazy about him. She moved into his room in his mother's home and was soon pregnant. So, Ariel went and got them an apartment. Nilda's sister described him as a nice guy and was really good to her sister in the beginning. Their first child, Ariel Jr., who goes by Anthony, was born in 1981. Ariel was happy to be a father and had Nilda bring the baby to his performances, but it didn't take long for him to start treating her differently. He was beginning to be controlling and possessive. You see, once she had his baby, he began to view her as his property. It was not long after Anthony was born that he began to physically abuse her. He began to hit her in the face, grab her by her hair, shove her down on concrete floors. He punched her in the face so hard once that it broke her nose. She was forced to wear very heavy makeup to try to hide the bruises. Then the rules began. She was no longer to leave the apartment without his permission. And if she did leave, she had to wear these big, baggy, long clothing so that the men wouldn't be so apt to look at her. He dictated everything she was to buy at the grocery store. Ariel then began trying to catch her sneaking out of their apartment by saying he was leaving, then waiting downstairs to see if she would try to leave. On the very rare occasion she tried to, he would beat her mercilessly. He nearly completely cut her off from everything and everyone she knew. According to an interview with Anthony's now wife, she stated that Anthony spoke about how when he was a very young child, his father was a very abusive man. He reportedly beat him and his mother very badly and basically kept them prisoner in their own home. He talked about a system of locks that his father had so that no one could enter or leave their home. Ariel controlled what TV shows she watched, including banning her from watching The Cosby Show because he was a racist. He took it so far as to put his hand on the back of the TV when he got home from work to see if it felt warm. Once Nilda became pregnant again, the beatings increased in both frequency and intensity. She stated she once had morning sickness and took some time to rest, getting up later than usual to clean the apartment, and he hit her in the mouth so hard that it broke some of her teeth. They moved into a very small apartment in Nilda's father's house, and her own father testified to the fact that he knew Ariel locked Nilda in there, and he was also aware of the abuse Ariel was inflicting on his own daughter but Nilda told him to stay out of it. In 1983, his daughter was born. When Nilda's siblings came to see the baby, Ariel would not allow it. In fact, he would not allow most anyone to even be near his daughter. After the birth, he shoved Nilda into a large cardboard box. He shut the flaps over her head and demanded that she stay in there until he told her that she could get out. 
Then he got fired from his factory job and had to go on unemployment. Now, along with being on unemployment, since he and Nilda were not ever technically married, she received food stamps. He scammed the food stamp system to purchase cocaine. Needless to say, things were very, very bad. Now, outside of the closer circle, no one suspected that things were really that bad. Ariel had no close friends aside from his brothers, but they were really heavy drinkers and drunk most of the time, still living with their mother, and they turned a blind eye. To others, he was charming, a talented musician, and the more successful out of his brothers. You see, he owned a vehicle, he lived away from his mother's home, he worked, he started a family, etc. I mean, sure, sometimes people saw him being demanding, and he had a cocky side to him, of, of course. But they wrote it off as just being his personality and nothing more. In 1985, he found a driving job and moved his family into a new apartment. Once away from Nilda's family, he became even more violent. He broke her nose again and told her she was not able to seek medical treatment. A few weeks later, he had kicked her in the torso so badly that she was forced to go to the hospital where they discovered one of her ribs had been shattered. She later suffered a dislocated shoulder because of him, him believing fully that she deserved this punishment. He bludgeoned her over the head with a metal bar, which put her in the hospital for three days. It took over 40 stitches to close her scalp. The only way he would allow her to go to the hospital was if she promised not to involve the police. Then in 1988, she found out she was pregnant again, and he hit her over the head with a barbell when she was nine months pregnant. He beat her severely, and yet she, just a few days later, gave birth to a healthy baby girl. For two more years, Nilda experienced unimaginable abuse. She even suffered a blood clot on her brain. And then finally, she escaped to a neighbor's apartment and called the police. Ariel was arrested as Nilda was questioned by the police. She would not press charges and they were forced to let him go. Quote, life with my father growing up was abusive and painful, said Anthony, who was just eight years old when he witnessed this attack. He was a violent, controlling man, and my mother was the one who bore the brunt of his attacks, although I wasn't spared either." Unquote. If Anthony tried to protect his mother, he would get beat as well. Quote, I remember crying myself to sleep because my legs were covered in welts from belts and seeing my mom getting beat up in our home. No one should ever have to see their mom crumpled up in a corner on the floor the way I did so many times." Unquote. This was a quote from Anthony. So not long after that, a piano player named Tito de Jesus was rehearsing and had brought his fiancée with him. Ariel made an inappropriate comment toward her. Tito said he looked at him suspiciously but still became close friends with him. Tito said Errol was one of the best bass players in Cleveland, though his off-putting and demanding personality made it to where other musicians refused to work with him. 
Then in 1990, Nilda gave birth to their fourth and final child, a baby girl. Soon after, Ariel was fired from his driving job for laziness. That December, he applied for a school bus driver position and on the application he put, quote, I enjoy working with children. I have a good driving record. I speak English and Spanish. I plan to drive a bus and work with young people, unquote. He was hired in February of 1991, driving a school bus for $10 an hour, which was a pretty decent wage at the time. He also locked his family inside of their own home. If someone would come visit, they stated it would take a long time for him to be able to come to the door and get it open. Ariel then took to keeping a mannequin wearing a dark wig leaned up against a wall and would sometimes even drive around the neighborhood with it. He would threaten the children with it, saying, quote, Act up again, you'll be in that back room with that mannequin. Unquote. But again, I want to stress that people outside of the inner circle were completely unaware. A neighbor stated, quote, He gained trust with the kids and the parents. You can only do that if you're nice. Unquote. In 1996, Nilda finally built up enough courage to grab one of her children and run outside, foretelling. All the while, she was screaming for help. The neighbors ran out to help her, and that's when she got the rest of her children. She left Ariel, and she never returned. Thankfully, she was awarded full custody of the children, and he was given no visitation rights. Though he continued to threaten to kill her and their daughters, he would sometimes also kind of kidnap their daughters or at least keep them away from their mother for a period of time, which forced the court to require he attend batterer counseling and substance abuse counseling. Ariel lived in the now infamous house on Seymour Avenue and had since 1992. Once his family had fled the house, Ariel rarely granted access for them to come in. If anyone was allowed in, there were rooms that they were not allowed to have access to, and there were locks on the basement door, as well as the attic door, and the garage was locked up tight too. On August 23, 2002, 21-year-old, very petite, Michelle Knight had just left her cousin's house when Ariel saw her. He offered her a ride. She accepted because she knew one of his daughters. Instead, he drove her to his house. He lured her inside with the idea of him having a puppy to give her. He forced her down into the basement and tied her hands and feet together. He pulled her up using her hands, feet, and neck. He left her there for three days without food. He then sexually assaulted and physically abused her regularly for years. It's documented that she had a court date that day to try to get custody of her infant son back as he was in custody of the state. She was reported missing by her family, but it was long believed that she was just too distraught over the loss of her son and had simply run away. Michelle was removed from the FBI missing persons database the next year. 
Ariel stated later that Michelle's kidnapping hadn't even been planned for that day. He admitted that he had been planning to kidnap someone, though. On April 21st, 2003, 16-year-old Amanda Berry called her sister to tell her that she was going to catch a ride home from the Burger King fast food restaurant she worked at. Ariel offered her a ride and she accepted again. She was kind of familiar with his kids. She stated that he kept a lighthearted conversation going, talking about his kids, and Amanda said he was very nice in the car just not so much once they arrived in the house. He lured her inside and was held captive, but separate from Michelle. Then a few days later, Ariel used Amanda's cell phone to call Amanda's mother to tell her that her daughter was fine and that she'd be home in a couple of days. Lies. On April 2nd, 2004, 14-year-old Georgina or Gina de Jesus, remember Tito? She was the daughter of Ariel's friend, and she was walking home from middle school. She and one of Ariel's daughters were very close friends at the time. Ariel spotted her and asked if she would help him find his daughter, so Gina got into the vehicle to help the search, not thinking twice about it. She too was abducted, taken back to his house, and restrained down in the basement. Now, these girls endured the unimaginable. They were raped repeatedly. Michelle would, on occasion, get pregnant, so Ariel would starve her and beat her until she miscarried. The other girls were not spared either, though Gina believes that she never did get pregnant. The girls were given plastic buckets for their waste, and they said he very rarely ever emptied them. Gina's family and others held a vigil for her, and Ariel attended that vigil. There were some whispers of a witness, but the description of the perpetrator looked nothing like Ariel. He would do the same types of things to these poor girls that he had done to his children's mother, setting up traps to make them think he wasn't home and that they could escape, then catching them and beating them severely. He would tie them up to a support beam in the basement to assault them. And again, if any of them so much as put a toe over the line, he would beat them and starve them within an inch of their lives. The same year he kidnapped Gina, he was reprimanded for leaving a child unattended on the school bus so that he could go get some food. The next year, Nilda filed charges against Ariel in the domestic relations court, accusing him of inflicting multiple severe injuries on her and of, quote, frequently abducting their daughters, unquote. She was able to get a restraining order against him, but it was dismissed a few months later. Then in early 2006, Amanda realized that she was pregnant. She feared terribly that Ariel would beat her and starve her to make her miscarry, only he did allow the pregnancy to continue. So imagine now a 19-year-old teenage girl who had been held prisoner under absolutely deplorable conditions, violated and severely abused. She's scared and now she knows she's pregnant. I'm quite sure she knew without a doubt that there would be no medical care no prenatal vitamins, and no hospital visit to give birth. 
she would be, of course, correct. Only, when she finally went into labor, he was generous enough to provide her a child-sized blow-up pool so that she, quote, wouldn't make a mess. Michelle, who had obviously given birth before, helped Amanda, and she eventually gave birth to a daughter on Christmas Day. And side note, 2006 was the year that Ariel's daughter gave birth to a baby girl, and then once that baby was nearly a year old, Emily, Ariel's daughter, slashed the baby's throat, afraid that her sisters and mother were having affairs with her boyfriend. Nilda testified at that trial that her daughter didn't think straight, that she would think things about people that simply were not true. In 2008, Emily was sentenced to 25 years in prison for attempted murder and battery. So when it came to Amanda's baby, it said that the baby had stopped breathing for just a moment, and Ariel threatened to kill Michelle if the baby didn't survive. But Michelle successfully resuscitated her. At this point, Michelle and Gina were kept chained in one room with only a few feet of length to walk around, while Amanda, also similarly chained, and the baby were kept in another room. And still years went by. Neighbors stated that they called the police due to what they considered suspicious activity at the house, but the police say they have no record of that. Once, Ariel asked his own son, Anthony, if he ever thought those kidnapped girls would be found, and Anthony said sadly he believed that they were most likely dead. His father replied, quote, Really? You think so? Unquote. And still, years went by. Ariel didn't allow visitors inside most of his house. If he did, on the rare occasion, let a friend or family in, they came in through a back door and were only allowed in the kitchen, where all who visited stated he played really loud music at all times. In 2012, Nilda died from a brain tumor at the age of 48, and still the girls were held captive. Amanda kept journals of what life was like, you know, how often they were assaulted and beat and dreams that the girls had about how their lives would be if they were ever set free. The girls bonded together as best they could through their shared experiences. Ariel was also finding solace in writing, such as a Facebook post where he wrote, quote, A real woman would not use their child as a weapon to hurt the father when the relationship breaks down. Do not lose sight of the fact that it is the child that suffers. Share or like if you agree. Unquote. Ariel would sometimes bear his soul to the girls and talk about how much he hated his own mother and then turn around and go visit her. As Amanda's baby got older and older, she would pretend to walk her daughter to school because she wanted to give her child the most normal experience that she could given her very bleak circumstances. And it would seem that Ariel loved the child too, as he would take her with him and leave the house to run errands. People saw him with a little girl and assumed it was family, such as a granddaughter. He once found a flyer for the missing Gina de Jesus, whose family obviously never gave up hope. He took it home and gave it to her in quite the display of cruelty. He said he really had no exit strategy. 
and still the years went by. Finally, in May 2013, after being held captive for around a decade, there presented a rare long shot of a chance for rescue. The little girl began to ask her father why the girls had to be chained up, why all the doors had to be locked, and so on. On that day in May, Ariel, who had accidentally left Amanda's room's door unlocked, left the house to go to McDonald's to get something to eat. The now seven-year-old little girl walked downstairs and ran back up to tell her mother that, quote, I don't find daddy. Daddy's nowhere around. Mom, daddy's car is gone, unquote. For the first time in 10 years, she dared to take the chance, feeling like this would be yet another one of his tests to see if they disobeyed and get a beating. She went downstairs to the front door, which was also unlocked, but apparently wired with an alarm. She was somehow able to stick her arm through the storm door and began to scream, quote, somebody, please, please help me. I'm Amanda Berry, please, unquote. Thankfully, Charles Ramsey, a man who just happened to be walking by, saw and heard her and helped break open the door. She grabbed her daughter and ran out. Breathless and completely, understandably terrified. She did her best to explain who she and the girls were and what was going on. They took her to a phone to call 911. That 911 recording is easily available on YouTube if you'd like to hear it. It is heart-wrenching. After a decade, a decade, the girls were finally free. Ariel was arrested that day and charged with four counts of kidnapping and three counts of rape. His two brothers were arrested as well at first, but released once it was obvious that they had had no idea. No one did. Some said it didn't surprise them and others were completely dumbfounded. It was thought he would also be charged with aggravated murder for the intentional induction of the miscarriages, but he was ultimately found guilty on 512 counts of kidnapping, 446 counts of rape, six felonious assault, three child endangerment, two aggravated murder, and one possession of criminal tools. A plea bargain would see him sentenced to life in prison plus 1,000 years. Now, Ariel spoke of his addiction to pornography and that he had a, quote, sexual problem, but that he was, quote, a good person and not a monster, unquote, and that he didn't realize what he was doing was wrong. Side note, you know damn well what you did was wrong. The girls have written books, there are plenty of interviews online, and they still want privacy. Amanda's daughter is thriving, thankfully. Ariel's house has been demolished. His children were interviewed and his daughter, who was so very close to Gina, gave a tearful and heartfelt apology to her old friend. She could not believe her own father had done that to the girls. His son Anthony did an interview stating he wanted nothing to do with his father and he would not be visiting him in prison. On September 3, 2013, one month into his life sentence, Ariel committed suicide. He had hung himself with bedsheets. He was 53 years old. They tried to resuscitate him, but it was unsuccessful. 
He had written in a prison journal about the constant harassment he was receiving while in prison, and the thought of being there the rest of his life were the determining factors, because God forbid it be remorse. I did read that Michelle was going to have to have reconstructive surgery on her face due to the facial and cranial bone disfigurement Ariel caused by her beatings, but I'm not sure if she had that completed or not. Michelle is medically unable to have children due to the abuse. Gina founded the Cleveland Family Center for Missing Children and Adults. Now, while I try very hard to have empathy for each and every case that I go over with you guys, you know, due to early life experiences and so on, we all know that those affect the outcome of that child into their adulthood. But I cannot find empathy for Ariel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>